Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched the 1994 sci-fi blockbuster Stargate, directed by disaster movie filmmaker Roland Emmerich, who co-wrote the screenplay with Dean Devlin. Kurt Russell and James Spader star as an Air Force colonel and an Egyptologist who travel through an alien portal called the Stargate. They arrive on a, on a planet that resembles ancient Egypt, where humans are ruled by a tyrannical alien who styles himself as the sun god Ra. Uh, so this is an old favourite of mine. It's a classic kind of corny blockbuster. There's a lot going on in this movie. I find it very enjoyable, but there are a lot of extremely transparent and obvious colonial themes, starting with the fact that it's based on the uh, conspiracy theory that ancient civilizations, particularly those in the global south, were founded by aliens, which is popularized by a very best-selling book called Chariots of the Gods by Eric von Deineken. You may have heard of it. We can blame him for a lot. But yeah, I like this movie. I do confess I partly like this movie due to nostalgia because I did what it's one of the, um, it's a film that I saw as a teenager when I wasn't watching a lot of blockbusters, but I did rewatch it a couple of years ago, still enjoyed it. Far better than the TV series of which I have seen many episodes and we will talk about. Not a good TV show, freely admit that one. Um, so I asked Morgan to watch this so we could have a fun blockbuster episode and she has just informed me that she really did not like this film. <laughs> Yeah, my first, my opening questions were going to be, how old were you when you first saw this movie? <laughs> and when did you most recently watch this film? Because yes. it seems like something that you would have to imprint on as a young person. Yeah, I would say probably and, I saw it around the age of like 11 or 12. Yes. And I mean, I too was obsessed with ancient Egypt as a child, <laughs> as so many young nerds were, you know, and still are today, I'm sure. And you obviously studied, you know, the ancient world for your university degree. So this was a passion of yours for a long time. And um, the question of how recently you watched it occurred to me because <laughs> having never seen this movie before, I spent 75% conservatively of its running time thinking, Jesus Christ, this is so racist. So... You know, as someone who did not watch it as a child, I was just Absolutely appalled. a racist film, and indeed a racist franchise. The TV show, if anything, is worse. So... I do not doubt <laughs> this. I have never seen an episode of the show. And, I mean, you had said to me, when we sort of teased this at the end of the last episode, that the concept of, like, you know, the conspiracy theory that aliens built the pyramids is obviously, you know, racist and imperialist, which we can get into... But I found the entire movie so racist that I had a very difficult time enjoying it. And at a certain point, I thought, oh, my God, the plot of this film is basically the plot of Avatar. And then I couldn't <laughs> stop thinking that. I mean, they're both kind of like Victorian, um, like explorer fantasies about kind of white Western men going to like an exotic location and saving the locals from like an exotic oppressive force and also sleeping with a local woman. Yes, correct. And the lead characters understand the culture of the native group better than the actual native group themselves. And in this case, James Spader, who plays the Egyptologist, like reveals it to them and then leads them to rebellion. So, um... Yeah, I had some problems. I, with it. I really hope we get some 
messages from listeners because I'm always curious to know what the listener background is because I'm sure we have a lot of listeners who were in Stargate fandom but my guess is that the political makeup of our audience is also people who will fully recognize that this <laughs> this movie's political flaws because clearly I love this film but I have also literally attended convention panels which were about like the orientalism and the kind of in the TV show as well, like the kind of pro-military, like post 9-11 themes of this franchise. So it's like, you know, the complexity of your fave being a problematic. Godspeed to you, my friend. We'll, we'll see how that goes. We should begin with some background for how this came into being, which you are more qualified to discuss. So Roland Emmerich obviously is a very commercially successful Hollywood director He's originally German and he has worked with his producer and co-writer Dean Devlin on many films. Um, I would say probably his most successful movie is Independence Day, but um, he also made numerous other blockbusters, including the 1990s Godzilla movie, uh, The Patriot, Day After Tomorrow, 10,000 BC, 2012... Most recently, he made Independence Day, and last year he made a historical uh, blockbuster set in World War II called Midway. Independence Day and Stargate are probably his best movies. Of the ones I've seen, others that I've seen of his, none of them were good. And generally, I mean, he makes films which make a lot of money, are very stupid, have a lot of action sequences and thin characterization, but are, you know, generally very enjoyable. And this movie came kind of relatively towards the beginning of his career. Um, he was making movies in the in the nineteen eighties as well, but this was kind of his first really big film. And obviously, clearly inspired by *Chariots of the Gods*. I found an article from last year, which was kind of a twenty fifth anniversary uh, celebration oral history in Variety, which was very fun because it had lots of behind the scenes details about this movie. Like when they conceived of this idea, they were going to sci-fi conventions to like persuade nerds that this wasn't a ripoff of Star Trek or Star Wars, which is very amusing to me. And part of their persuasive technique was the amount of research they did into like inventing this fake ancient Egyptian language. Um, also, clearly, both of the two lead actors did this mo- this movie purely for cash. Um, but Kurt Russell uh, got given the wrong script, so he thought he was signing up for like an absolutely dog shit script, and it turned out they accidentally gave him the first draft. And when they gave him the real script, he was like, "Actually, this is fine." There are several kind of lead characters aside from the main two, but kind of one of the more interesting is the guy who played the villain, who's uh, Jay Davidson plays Ra, and he is kind of a androgynous, sort of mildly sexually threatening uh, Hollywood villain of a type that definitely has like a queer following that the director may or may not have intended, but it's kind of some negative shit going on there. Um, But a pretty cool Hollywood supervillain. And this actor had a very fast rise to fame by starring as a trans woman in The Crying Game in 1992, for which he had an Oscar nomination. So immediately off the back of this, he was able to demand $1 million for his fee on this movie, which is nuts for an actor who had been in basically nothing else. But by this point, um, he had like a serious drug habit and was apparently a nightmare on set. His personal assistant was the bassist from Frankie Goes to Hollywood, who like stole a bunch of stuff from him and left the film halfway through. So there was a lot of behind the scenes drama from Jay Davidson, who after this movie decided to leave Hollywood. I think he was already kind of in rehab and sorting himself out after this film was made. But um, yeah, a lot of a lot of shit going on behind the scenes there, as is the case for so many blockbusters, because Hollywood is like that. 
Well, apparently Jay Davidson didn't want to do it because he'd already decided that he hated Hollywood and was like, well, I'll just ask for a million dollars. Surely they'll never give it yeah. to me. And then they were like, sure. And he was and he like, was give me a million dollars and you're going to have to film me in half the scenes from the shoulders up because I'll refuse to take my nipple rings off. And it's like, well, you know what? I'm glad you got your million like dollars. 10 to 15 minutes and they dub his voice. So truly... What a payday. And it's a very compelling character, you know. Lots of glowing eyes. Very silly. <laughs> and and it kind of it, it combines a lot of different sort of blockbuster factors. So obviously the narrative, as we said, is this very sort of classic white saviour trope adventure story. And it draws together uh, a lot of sort of Egyptian mania swords and sandals stuff. Also a lot of Indiana Jones and of course military action movies. But something I did notice when I rewatched this a couple of years ago is that it's noticeably more critical of the military than the TV show is. Like the the main two characters, you've got this kind of classic nerd action hero pairing where James Bader's character, Daniel Jackson, is an archaeologist and linguist and his job is to sort of understand the alien Egyptian culture and also translate a lot of language. And then Kurt Russell is the military guy who's really tough, but he also is really depressed because his uh, son, who was a child, accidentally shot himself because there was a gun in the house. And the his mission is basically to like blow up the Stargate once they've got to the other planet to protect Earth from like potential alien invasion. And I feel like they do kind of portray the military as like a bunch of trigger happy grunts and they're like likely to abandon this alien civilization and so forth. Whereas the TV show had like a ton of military input and was borderline uh, propaganda for the entire run. It aired throughout the late 90s and 2000s and it was very much kind of a 9-11 era franchise. It also aired during like the low point in the Star Trek franchise. So there was a Star Trek TV series for part of this, but it wasn't like a good one or a popular one. And Stargate kind of filled that cultural whole with this procedural drama that was kind of very jingoistic, very kind of post 9-11 Bush era sci-fi and just like full of machine guns and Air Force officers. So um, interesting cultural legacy this film wound up having. (laughs) I mean, it is true that Kurt Russell is going to blow the thing up, which is not the worst plan, to be frank, but he doesn't tell anyone and that's bad, but he's only going to sacrifice himself because he's depressed because his son has died, which is a psychological character issue that is explored 1%, I would say, <laughs> in this movie. I mean, you know, I would say pretty much average for a blockbuster. <laughs> but they're definitely, like, the military guys, they kind of bully James Spader a little bit right at the beginning, but otherwise are pretty much sympathetically portrayed, I would say. And the way the movie treats guns is wild. It's very 90s as well, because I feel like when you go through different eras of Hollywood, like the usage of guns, particularly in movies that are going to be watched by children, is like so varied. Because as we've kind of discussed in some other podcasts recently, the premier action franchises of our time are superheroes and cars. Whereas in the 90s, it was like, we love guns. Yes. I mean, we discussed this when we talked about The Matrix. Kurt Russell's son accidentally killed himself with a gun and he's like tormented about this and he befriends this young boy on this other planet and 
like, they have a heartwarming scene where he shows him how to smoke a cigarette, which I was like, wow, the past, because people are not allowed to smoke in PG-13 movies anymore. Um, it was also, like, but, such an absolutely, like, this is how American soldiers bond with a local kid in the country they've invaded scene. Like, quintessential. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, gives him his lighter, very heartwarming. But then the kid sort of picks up his gun and is like, oh, what's this? And he freaks out and is like, no, no, it's dangerous. The kid runs away. But then when they're fomenting the local rebellion, the way they do that is with guns because the local people have no weapons that can compete with the evil guys sort of blaster things. And there are all of these shots of them like triumphantly raising their machine guns into the air, the locals, I mean, and like theatrically shooting all of these people with machine gun fire. And again, at the end of the movie, this concludes with all of the local people saluting the military men and then them going back home. So, like, the degree to which this is, like, the military is bad, um, I yeah, don't know Yeah, I mean, it's much. not exactly, like, it's not exactly a leftist drama. <laughs> no. I would, I would love to know to what extent kind of military consultants were involved in greenlighting the TV shows. Because I feel, I mean, this is a fairly obvious, like, choice to make into a procedural TV series because, like, you've got these really tropey characters and they can just go to a different alien planet each week like Star Trek. But, like, the format it is so easy to guide into that sort of jingoistic tone. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear, like, yeah, the oral history of which Air Force consultants were, like, making sure this show would run for 15 seasons across the US. <laughs> but, yeah, what do you think of... So the two lead characters are played by two true... 90s stars we should talk about the female characters in a minute as well but what do you think of mr spader and mr russell well spader had was not a blockbuster person at all at this point which was how they got him for this movie because he wouldn't cost as much oh yeah of course i mean this is i think the strategy for a film like this at this point because it was part it was like financed by like people in france yeah, weirdly it and was like it was an indie just- movie <laughs> Yeah, and then distributed by an American studio. I mean, this is how he gets Independence Day, Emmerich, because this is a big hit. And it had not cost, I think it cost $70 But Spader had never made a movie like this before. He'd basically done erotic dramas up to this point, which is, I mean, so I've seen Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which is 89, I think. And he'd previously done, was it Pretty in Pink, one of the Hughes movies? Yeah, he did Pretty in Pink. And Wall Street. Yes. So those are the three big ones in the 80s. And then there's a period, the gap between the like five years between this is a bunch of titles. I was looking on IMDb last night that I've never heard of. And I clicked on them and it's like numerous films that are like erotic thriller. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, he truly was just like had this niche. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, like, he still I'm made like secretary in, two- in 2002. So yes, it went on forever. It's so funny. And I mean, I've only seen of those movies, as I said, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, in which I believe the setup of that film, it's been a long time since I've seen it, is that his thing is that he doesn't really have sex with women. He wants to film them where, where he, like, asks them questions about, like, sex and sexual topics. And Andy McDowell is this kind of oppressed woman who's married to this guy who's an asshole, and they have this weird thing. And... He's a weirdo, and there's something kind of threatening about 
the whole situation because she's like, I don't want to talk about this stuff. But he's not actually a creep. He's just like has this weird thing. He's got an energy in that movie. My God. Like you watch it and you're just like, oh my God, like this is this is a lot. And um, it shouldn't be the case because he looks pretty normal and he's just talking, but he just has the vibe. Like he's got it. And in this film, he does not. He's just a nerd. It's actually like wild. We were discussing this last week, like after we finished recording, but it is wild how James Spader can just switch it on and off because there's a lot of sex symbols where it's kind of innate. And obviously they are doing like a performance that is, you know, part of their sex symbol energy. But with James Spader, it is very much like he is incredibly, perhaps uniquely good at playing a sexy character in a way that isn't really accessed by really many other contemporary male actors, particularly that I can think of. Like, I feel like, you know, Ryan Gosling definitely kind of understands and depicts female gay sex appeal in a way that is like outside the bandwidth of Hollywood's idiotic sort of, oh, this is a shirtless man with abs kind of idea, which is obviously meaningless. But with James Bader, he did do all of these like erotic thrillers. And then like, one of his longest running, I mean, I've not seen his current TV show, The Blacklist, but like when he was well into middle age, he was playing in Boston Legal, sort of a bit more of a like slightly sitcom version of this character where it's like by that point, he was, you know, he wasn't like really young and handsome anymore, but he was still like pulling all these really hot women. And you were like, well, it's James Spader, so I get it. But like, this is like, uh, this was my first introduction to him. So it was like, I had it the wrong way around. Because in this movie, he like, Obviously, he is the character who gets a love interest, but he is your quintessential sort of nerdy, like floppy haired, academic dweeb surrounded by alpha male characters. And it's like, wow, he is really not playing to type in this. And like, he tried other blockbusters as well. Like, he starred in this spaceship movie called Supernova, which I would love to see at some point. It's reportedly appalling. I think that was one of those ones where they actually took the director's name off the film because they couldn't bear to be publicly associated <laughs> with it. So um, Angela Bassett, that was his co-star. Great. I mean, I was telling you last week, I have met James Spader. I don't want to say where. It was not an exciting experience, but like, I just shouldn't say. But like, and it was not meaningful. But I was in his presence for like five minutes, I would say. And he's just like a normal he's person. Just regular. <laughs> this is a normal guy. <laughs> just talked about his wife like whatever and obviously he's middle-aged now but i was just like this is fascinating fascinating to think about you as you are now just like chatting versus like sex lies and video and it's honestly it's like the reverse of george clooney i obviously think george clooney is a good actor and he's been great in a lot of stuff particularly comedies but there's a lot of movies where like his role is just sort of i'm george clooney and i'm charming and attractive and that's his real life brand as well and with james bader it's like I don't know where you got this from, but he is just, it's just come from somewhere and you're going to use it. So well done. And God bless. But as we said, that's not happening in this movie where he has an amazing haircut, which is too long. Amazing, and, amazing uh, haircut. Just sort of acts like he is a genius at reading hieroglyphs. Yes. Which is quite funny. <laughs> I mean, I enjoyed the first 20 minutes or so of this movie quite a lot where he's just like at a base somewhere being like, well, obviously this says this. And it's like, I do not know how you know that because based on the information that you have, that seems impossible for you to have translated that that fast. But sure. I really like the sort of academic mentor character is an old lady because yes. he's sort of plucked from academic disgrace 
uh, by Dr. Catherine Langford, who is sort of the the old lady who originally, like she and her father, discovered the Stargate in the 1920s, kind of buried next to the pyramids. And I feel like this character is perhaps the most realistic and authentic character in the entire film to have just like an old, rich academic lady with the sort of weird interests who's pushing forward this very bizarre research. And I'm like, yeah, there should be more of like specifically that trope in Hollywood movies, as opposed to the sort of like boffin with glasses nerd trope, which is mostly just in films. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I liked her. I loved that Richard Kind was one of the other people working at the military base in for everything. the first 20 minutes. He's in, he's in the Stargate TV shows too, in different roles, because oh, <laughs> he's got to be in I everything. I just love him. <laughs> I love him so much. He sadly goes away once they travel to the alien planet. And then, of course, there's Kurt Russell, who is introduced angsting over his dead son with long hair, and then he appears with short hair once the top. military recalls him. He wears a very tight black t-shirt for the entire movie and some great sunglasses and doesn't speak for most of the film. <laughs> Have you seen any of the big Kurt Russell films? No, I was reflecting watching it. I don't think... Apparently he was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood last year. It must have been one of the, like... There's a zillion actors in that movie and he must have, like, a three-minute scene because I don't remember him in it. I don't think I've seen him in anything except that, apparently, which I don't remember. The big kind of 80s hits of his are The Thing and Escape from New York, which are both great. Escape from New York is obviously a pulp movie and I have no idea how much you'd enjoy that. It's kind of the Mad Max zone. The Thing is like incredible. One of my favourite kind of old horror movies. Highly recommended. Um, I think everyone understands that The Thing is good. It's actually wild to consider that at the time it didn't get good reviews. It's objectively a brilliant film. (laughs) Yeah, it was funny realising that I hadn't seen him in anything really before because he's such an iconic figure and like his face is so recognisable. And he's still like he's still appearing. I mean, obviously, like now it's kind of he's got like retro factor because he's this big 80s star and there was loads of really annoying like 80s nostalgia movies, which is why he plays the dad in Guardians of the Galaxy 2. But yeah, he's still starring in like big movies. Yeah, I mean, I may have seen him in something I'm forgetting, but certainly the big stuff from yeah. his heyday I haven't, which makes sense when I thought about it because it's lots of sort of mainstream yeah. stuff from the 80s, which isn't my zone really. But um, it was just funny to think about because he is so famous. I also, as a brief tangent, after watching this last night, I was so aggravated. I wanted to watch something else. And I put on the first episode of his son, Wyatt Russell show Lodge 49, which was like beloved by critics and I hadn't seen it. And I was just like, I wonder what his son is like. And that kid who is four years older than us, so I should not call him a kid, is so disgustingly talented. It made me angry because you don't want nepotism to work, but it did. And he is insanely good. And so clearly uh, the genes of Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn succeeded in that case and he's a very good actor well morgan you can look forward to seeing him playing a key role in the falcon and the winter soldier tv show which you will not be watching because you've no no longer watched marvel films but i will be watching because i am paid to watch marvel content yes he actually has a pretty good character because he's playing this sort of um like the evil captain america that the american government makes to replace steve rogers i mean Literally one episode of the show was enough for me to be like, maybe I will watch. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But tying it back to this movie, you could really tell 
even though Kurt Russell has like minimal dialogue in this movie and basically just stands around looking glum or like shooting people, like he's such a movie star that, and like the sun too, the charisma is like rolling off the screen as you're watching this show. And this as well, like he just has the quality, right? Yeah, I think it's a really well cast movie. Yes, the lead certainly. I mean, Spader just doesn't have, I mean, he's fine. It's not like the part is challenging him, and he was very vocal about having done it for the money, which was... It's fine. You gotta get some money. Yep. No judgment from me. When you get to the local civilization that they find, (laughs) this is where my problems begin. So Spader has this necklace that the old lady gave him that her father found when he discovered the Stargate, which we have not actually explained that her father found a Stargate, such as it is, in the middle of the desert by the pyramids and they spader like decodes the symbols around the outside and they can then travel to a foreign planet and um they go through and they're supposed to be able to just find their way back but he can't decode the other symbols efficiently and then kurt russell is considering just blowing the whole thing up And they accidentally stumble upon this other civilization there. And James Spader has this necklace from this woman that has the eye of Ra on it. And the local people who speak a different language, so they have trouble communicating, immediately bow down and receive them as gods. It was like the road to El Dorado, but without any like critique (laughs) or (laughs) self-awareness. It goes on for so long that they're just like, oh, yes, let us give you a beautiful woman, a white woman, conveniently, even though most of the other people of this civilization are not white. And then you find out that Ra is this, like, evil alien who's been controlling these people, which is why their civilization has not progressed and they're not allowed to read or write. But the whole dynamic of them being like, yes, let us worship you, foreign white people, I was um, uncomfortable, shall we say. I would love to... um skip over to an alternate universe and interview the Gavia Baker Whitelaw that watched this for the first time age 30. Because <laughs> I'm just like, well, you know, it's politically disgusting, but it's a really enjoyable film. <laughs> yeah. Around halfway through, I was just like, when will this be over? <laughs> because I just didn't find it that entertaining. Because the whole thing is is what I'm talking about. And I found this stuff with the woman really tedious. And then she leads him to like, a secret place where there's hieroglyphs written on the walls and he explains her own history to her, which was also very charming. I was just like, <sighs> no. And then they, and then they over, overthrow the sun god Ra after a tour of various beautiful sort of somewhat ancient Egyptian looking locations, spaceships and uh, costumes. Lots of very cool production design in this movie. Um, and the whole situation with like when he meets up with the girl is like, it's really transparently amazing how they fully just recreated that for Stargate Atlantis like 20 years later they were like let's just do exactly the same premise as this um but I think part of the reason why obviously nostalgia is a big factor but part of the reason why like I just love this movie so much is it has this incredible score which I was like messaging Morgan about last night like iconic has no effect of course if you hate the movie (laughs) nope so the, the score for this film was composed by David Arnold, who is now like a really successful and prolific uh, Hollywood and also British TV composer. He composed the theme, the theme to 
several of the recent Bond movies. He did Sherlock. Um, he's done kind of numerous blockbusters, especially with Roland Emmerich after this. But at the time when he was hired to do this movie, he was doing like student films for free. He was working in like a video store. He was in his 20s. And I just find that mind blowing because I think this is his best work. He's now like obviously a much more experienced uh, composer. But um, this is this colossal sort of symphonic, very sweeping old school orchestral score, which has like all these elements that they have in sort of historical swords and sandals movies where they're sort of chanting and so forth. But it also really draws heavily from Lawrence of Arabia, which is like a really clear kind of inspiration. And it also draws heavily from, there was obviously this kind of period of Egyptomania in the sort of 19th century in Europe where there was loads of kind of like knockoff sort of Egyptian imagery in like fashion and art. And also in music, there was a lot of Antony and Cleopatra and sort of Samson and Delilah, which didn't really draw from any actual researched ethnomusicology, but is kind of like a recognized sort of recycled uh, Western musical trope in itself. And a lot of that music is really incredible, even though like by modern standards, it would be kind of perceived as cultural appropriation. Uh, but this movie just has like this incredible, very emotive score that I feel like really adds a sense of wonder to what's really just quite a corny blockbuster adventure um, and I think it measures up to like a lot of better known film scores by like really well-known composers so well done David Arnold excellent achievement on this film I think the best element of the film by far I, I didn't notice <laughs> <laughs> I mean I noticed when there was music but it was not it uh, it could not save what else was happening I wouldn't me. say it's as good as Star Wars because like very few composers no, are at the level of John Williams who is one of our greatest living legends but it is definitely a cut like significantly better than most blockbuster scores and just like a really amazing work in itself in terms of like the re- the, the stuff that it references and just like the amount of emotion that it manages to convey in this like relatively formulaic movie about like people shooting aliens so yeah once again <laughs> I would recommend just listening to the Stargate music soundtrack I mean, I defer to you on this because you know more about music than I do. And I was too busy being aggravated by other things to pay much attention to the score. So, yeah, I'm not sure I have a whole lot else to add. I'd be interested to rewatch Independence Day because I've not seen that since I was a kid. And that movie, I think that movie is definitely like the most popular Roland Emmerich movie. Oh, yeah. And like it's generally like well received so i'd be interested to rewatch that and like see politically whether i'm more on board with independence day than this although i'm not wild actually not wildly enthusiastic about watching a jeff goldblum movie <laughs> to be honest no <laughs> come to think neither. of it forgot that he was in that but um yeah stargate fans and stargate haters please weigh in in the comments <laughs> yeah i mean it does seem like it's just such a relic of a specific time. And clearly there are so many fans of the show who like, you know, critical fans. Yeah. But like fans, nevertheless. And I it's mean, it strikes me as one of those of things. It's era. a lot like Supernatural, which is extraordinarily problematic in different ways, but in the same way also has this kind of split fandom where both of those shows are popular actually with the military Supernatural because it's all about male bonding and there's like dozens of DVD box sets that you can watch while you're um, overseas and also they both have like a really progressive sub-fandom of people who 
sort of like unwillingly fucking love these shows. Obviously also a lot of slash fandom because they're about sort of like contentious relationships between attractive men. Um, But like they have like this whole sub fandom of like people who are really critical of the politics while enjoying it, um, which is kind of an ongoing theme in a lot of mainstream American pop culture. Thankfully, none of like the really big franchises at the moment are in that position, but it for sure, there's a lot to be said about like the kind of Clinton and Bush era-ness of Stargate and the resulting TV shows. Well, I mean, this is not too long after the Gulf War. So it's not like, which obviously is different from the Forever Wars in terms of the cultural impact, but it's not like there's no context for the sort of imperialist Middle Eastern intervention, right? for sure. Which seems relevant here, even if Roland Emmerich obviously is not an American person. But uh, that seems like some of the context. And he also just loves the conspiracy theory. Like so many of his movies are about conspiracy theories which i'm sure he does not believe but like he obviously is just like give it to me and i'll make it sort of pulpy and I whatever mean, like 2012 <laughs> god yes he made a movie about how william shakespeare didn't exist oh my god i forgot that was him there's another one i can't think of at the moment i do like that his wikipedia page has like a section i've never seen this before but has a section that just lists the rotten tomatoes ratings because obviously every filmmaker has like a section that's like, what films did he make? But this is like, we are specifically going to include like a chart of how every single one of his films is critically panned. 10,000 Years BC has 8% on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, he just, he just makes bad films that make money, except for Stonewall, which was a bad film that did not make money. I mean, I remember The Patriot coming out and I grew up near Boston, which is like the hub of, you know, Revolutionary War history forever, right? And I did not see that film, of course, but it was... What year did that come out? Do you have it in front of you? 2000. Yes, I was in elementary school and everyone was talking about how someone's hand blew off. (laughs) This was talked about extensively in my high school and we were all like, it's so gross. So, you know, he was reaching the masses, even... See, I knew nothing about this film other than it's, like, famously conservative and stars Mel Gibson, which means that, like, I don't feel the need to learn anything else, but I've just discovered that it co-stars Jason Isaacs. So, um, that man gets around. He's in everything. And, of course, he's a badger. Um, but yeah, so, um, in conclusion, we've now seen Stargate. <laughs> Morgan, yes. what are we going to do next week? Next week, we have another listener request. It's a Japanese film called 37 Seconds, which I know nothing about, except that it is on Netflix, I believe, everywhere in the world. So wherever you are listening to this episode, you can watch this film called 37 Seconds. Um, it got very good reviews. I just don't know anything about the plot. So I am looking forward to discovering that. And two weeks from now, we will be talking about the wildly acclaimed and discussed show I May Destroy You by Michaela Cole, which has already aired in full on the BBC in the UK um, and is airing weekly currently on HBO in the United States, um, which I think is a better sort of delivery method because it's quite intense. It's the best thing I've seen on TV this year, for sure. Michaela Cole wrote it and stars in it and co-directed at least part of the show. Yeah, it's autobiographical. Um, Michaela Cole was roofied and raped at a bar and sort of begins from there. And the whole thing is about, you know, consent, etc. So obviously content warnings for that. But 
it's very intense, but not as punishing as I was necessarily expecting based on that log line. So I'm really looking forward to discussing that. And that will be in two weeks. We're telling you now. So you have some time to catch up if you would like to do that. Um, episodes are only a half an hour long, so it's doable. But next week, again, we will be talking about 37 Seconds, the Japanese film, which is on Netflix. Thank you to everybody for listening to this uh, somewhat contentious episode. <laughs> I feel like a... it's like we're contractually obliged to have a fight like once every eight weeks. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's been a while. So it's good to, good to get one in. Um Gabia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast. We are on Patreon at patreon.com slash Overinvested Podcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.